and you're listening. And you're listening. You're listening to Salmon. 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 To Salmon Fest Radio. We're your hosts, Satchel. And I'm Dave. We're kicking off episode five of Salmon Fest Radio with a bit of a passing the baton theme, next generation. We're featuring a band called Brograss, who performed at Salmon Fest 2021, and they're two brothers who are still in their teens, and they're really launching away in their bluegrass career and holding it down for the future of that genre. We're also bringing together the executive director and science director of Cook Inlet Keeper Sue Mulger and Maddie Lee, who is a young master's student through the University of Alaska Fairbanks, who's working on the Nilchik River to better understand the relationship between temperature and salmon, both their habitat and physiology. So I'm excited to get to that story of generational handoff. We're recording today from the beautiful Kachmik Bay, tucked away off the Cook Inlet in the headquarters of the Cook Inlet Keeper office. We're on land unseated by the Denina and Supiak people. These are cultures that have been here for thousands of years and are still here today. We uh, appreciate what they've done to hold the integrity of the ecosystem together, to build strong cultures, and to help us see the way to managing our future in a way that connects people and the world around them. So our hat is off and we want to acknowledge the people that have helped shape this remarkable landscape. So, without any further ado, let's hear from that young band from the San Juan Islands of Washington State, Brograss. My name's Tashi, I play mandolin and, uh, and vocals. Yeah, I'm Kai, I turned 17 a little while ago. Um, I mostly play guitar, but I've also been playing bluegrass fiddle and classical violin for a while, and I, I sing as well in, in the band, yeah. Before we started rolling, we were talking about the pandemic, and maybe this is 
the first gig you guys have played in a while. So can you guys talk to me a little bit about that, like the challenges of going through a pandemic as musicians and kind of what this means? Yeah, for sure. It's, it's definitely been very different. We've, we've had a few gigs, but it's really our first time playing a, playing a festival kind of show. And it's, yeah, it's great to be back playing in front of people. But, you know, we're definitely feeling it a little rusty over the years, but this is our first show and it felt really good to be back. And we have another one tomorrow, so we're really stoked. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, was, it was an interesting pandemic because it was Tashi's first year at Conservatory down in Wisconsin. So I was the only child for, for the first time um, and during a pandemic, which is definitely a lot of new experiences. Um, but it was great. I could you know, send him tunes down there and we'd kind of learn them online and then come back together and, and play them together. So yeah, it's, it was good. Yeah. So you mentioned only child. I don't know if it'll be clear to our listeners that you guys are actually brothers. So why don't we back up a little bit and a little brief history of your guys' band and how you started playing together and maybe some of your influences or genres that you associate with your with your music. Yeah, yeah. So we started out playing uh, classical violin, the Suzuki method, and our, our mom always played violin. So as a kid, we grew up listening to her playing Irish music. She had a little Irish band. So at some point, we we're like, hey, yeah, maybe we want to try that. So started taking classical violin lessons and kind of went from there. We started picking up other instruments. Uh, we started out, our first non-classical music was uh, kind of Irish music, but somewhere we found a... Uh, a bluegrass record, I think it was Tony Rice and Ricky Skaggs, and, and just kind of fell in love with that. Kind of went off on that whole tangent, started going to bluegrass festivals and picking with people, and uh, yeah, it kind of all went from there. We started doing some more touring the last few summers, kind of just regionally around where we are, but we've, we've gone to England a couple times, done some shows over there, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, we, we our first band experiences was actually with our parents. We had a, the Crow Valley String Band. We played mostly just local stuff on the islands and stuff. Um, and then, yeah, a bit after that, me and Tashi started doing more of a duo, duo bluegrass gig. Yeah. Cool. So you mentioned your your parents as as big influences. I'm sure. Yeah. Champions too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then a lot of uh, bluegrass and other mu- musician heroes. Um, I was a big fan of Chris Thiele for a long time, uh-huh. learning all of his solos and everything on mandolin. Um, Sam Bush, um, Kai has a lot of guitar influences uh, you can talk about, but yeah. Cool. And is this your guys' first ta- time either performing or even coming to Salmon Fest, or have you guys been here before? It is. This is our first time in Alaska, actually, so it's been really cool to travel around. We had a week before the festival to look around a little bit. We spent some time in Soldatna, got to see the salmon running up the river, which was pretty amazing because they don't run like that around where we are and yeah yeah so yeah really happy to be out here and yeah first time out in alaska and to salmon fest awesome you mentioned uh seeing salmon already and the rivers yeah. were you able to do any fishing or did you we, get out there we were yeah we get, we were able to do a little fishing we didn't catch anything uh-huh. and, we uh, did one fish uh, in eight hours that's true one. yeah our, our dad was out there with us he caught one fish he was out there all day i think our technique probably wasn't quite right i don't i don't know quite how the, how it all works but there were definitely people out there pulling them in but that's definitely something that was different for us because around where we live there's a lot of orca whales uh-huh. and our resident whales are kind of dying off uh-huh. and um probably go extinct pretty soon here because just the salmon aren't there and uh, there's a lot of damming around where we are which has kind of wiped out the salmon population and so it's it's definitely different here seeing the salmon running in like such large numbers but you can see yeah what amazing resource it is and how amazing they are and it's yeah it's, it's easy to see how important it is to protect them and for sure tell me a little bit about that the, the what you mentioned at home maybe those damming projects and yeah kind of you know, what's the conversation like about about salmon or about conservation in general where you guys are from? 
Yeah, there's there's really not really any wild salmon really left in our area, and so the the orca whale population has really been decimated by just the lack of natural natural salmon. There is a fishery down the road from where we live. I mean, a hatchery, um, and so we I mean we visit that a few times. I did school projects there and things, but yeah, really the wild population is really really struggling there. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of the spawning ground around where we are has been pretty decimated. So yeah, like Kai was saying, it's it's mostly hatchery fish. So out here you have real wild salmon, which is, is very cool. And then, yeah, again, the whole orca population. Kind of around where we are, there's resident orcas and transients. And the uh-huh. transients eat seals and, uh, and migrate to our area and then down to California every year. But our resident orcas spend the whole time just right around where we are. And they only eat salmon. And so it's been really hard on them as, uh, as the salmon population gets wiped out. And y- we definitely feel that in a lot of our whole tourist industry around where we are. is uh-huh. around orcas. And so I think everyone really feels the salmon, yeah, going away. Very, very interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that about the orca populations. Is that a draw that people are coming in to see those orcas? Is it going to have a big impact if they do leave? Or if Absolutely, yeah. It'll have a, definitely have a big impact on the economy in the little islands we live in. Disappears into the street. I must have been a million different places. Old things that I had seen. Everyone knew me from a couch radio set. I barely know. It'll make you rich, won't cost a thing. 
If you're just tuning in now, you're listening to our fifth episode of Salmon Fest Radio. We're talking to Tashi and Kai of Brograss backstage at Salmon Fest in the Cook and Lit Keeper Recording Lounge. And you can catch up with anything that you missed by tuning in wherever you get your podcasts. You're maybe on the first stop or one of the first performances post-COVID, but touring around, traveling around California or, or wherever else you've been, have you noticed other environmental challenges? You know, I know there's a lot. Maybe other challenges you see communities around where you live. Yeah, I mean, this summer has been interesting because it, we've been we've had a huge drought around where we live. We've had record high temperatures. 80 days without rain where we're living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which has been yeah pretty, pretty amazing and, uh, yeah, kind of scary to see kind of affects the whole global warming thing. And there's, I mean, there's a, a big question around where we live about damming because it's, I mean, it's super destructive for the fish, but the alternative is oil. And uh, there's a lot, a lot of the other sources of energy that, uh, that they go for are, can be even worse. So that's, that, that's a big question around where we are. But, Wildfires um, have been a huge issue in our area as well. I mean, last summer we couldn't go outside for a month because of just the smoke in the air. And we have friends in Oregon and people whose houses have been taken out by wildfires and certainly more prevalent in the last few years, yeah. Yeah, it's what, what an interesting situation. You're seeing these rivers dammed, is I'm guessing for hydroelectric yeah. power yeah. primarily, yeah. but we're also seeing the the obvious effects of fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah absolutely. Man, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation. You know, we feel like at this festival especially, um, music is bringing people together. The love for salmon is also bringing people together, especially the way people depend on it and use it here. So how do you think we can like use these kind of common ground, love of music, you know, and, and, and love of, of being out there interacting with the fish like you guys did? How can we use this to build, you know, common ground around around these goals of maybe of maybe changing what's going on? Yeah, I think recently, especially politically, there's been a lot of split between people and people have really come apart. And I think the pandemic's probably not helped that. Um, and I think, yeah, that's really the, the power of music is it brings people together, especially festivals like this. People can come together over around a common thing, um, being music. But I think the same can happen with a lot of these environmental issues. And people have to realize that we're all on the same side. We're, we're all here on Earth together. It's, it's our one planet, our one... Uh, one place and we all have to share it and take care of it for each other yeah i mean in a society that's almost defined by inequality and polarization it seems like any common ground we can find is is just like we're doing here at salmon fest and you know playing music and any way to bring people together is yeah really important well very well said yeah and and jumping off that that question you know what kind of a future do you imagine that we can be hopeful for or or you know what do you hope for not just you know for your band and, and and your success, but also for for all of us, you know, here in Alaska and around the country and around the world. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, but more of the coming together kind of thing. But I mean, it's it's nice to see just how much people seem to care, and you you definitely find these pockets of people like like right here at Salmon Fest, where people just care super hard, and uh, and seeing seeing those people get to come together with. Uh, other folks, it's. Uh, I, I think that's really where the hope is, and and where, uh, yeah, where we can try and find a solution to all this. Yeah, I mean, I think the hope is in, you know, being able to look at ourselves not as parts of groups that are divided, but as parts of groups that are that can come together. You know, politically, not as members of a political party, but as part of a system that's capable of enacting change. I think is 
hopefully that, that change of mindset is can give some hope for the future. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. When you're on stage, you know, what's, you know, what do you feel is like kind of the most important thing you're trying to convey either, either a message or just in general a vibe with your music. And, uh, how do you sort of measure if you're getting a response that you're looking for or, uh, yeah, just in general, how do you, how do you feel about the response you're getting? I mean, I think one of the big reasons that we're so drawn to music and, and love playing music so much is it's a, it's a chance to just connect with people. It, it lets us travel and meet all these people we'd never meet otherwise. And when you're performing like that, you're interacting with this huge group of people at the same time. And so that's, that's really important. I mean, growing up, we always had these heroes who were just incredibly talented and we we're always striving to get as close as we could to them. And it was always an impossible task, but that, that constant pushing yourself and trying to, trying to be better, knowing that you may never get there, but that your goal is always to get better. And I mean, you talk to people, some of these performers who've been playing their whole lives and are still learning and performing. And I think that's uh, that's an important thing and kind of what it's all about. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, like Tashi said, I mean, it's just the power of, you know, nurturing connections between people is really what, what we're here to do. And so, you know, playing old Jackson Brown songs and seeing, you know, older folks smiling in the audience, those kind of things, seeing people waltzing in the front is just, yeah, really, really what makes it the best. Yeah. How do you feel like your music has changed your relationship as, as brothers? Or how do you feel like you guys have evolved as a family even? Yeah, I mean, like any brothers, we're uh, we're best friends sometimes, and sometimes we hate each other's guts. Yep. But um, I think music's really great because it's it's something that we always have to come back together and uh, fight it out and uh, and keep uh, keep going. So we've definitely really felt it since I've been off at college this last year. Yeah, just just kind of how important playing music together has been for us. But yeah, I mean, it's great. We'll always have it, and it's always a a great opportunity just to come back together and keep keep playing together. Yeah, something something to always come back to I think is a really powerful thing. And so even when he annoys me and beats me up, to come back to it is <laughs> is always good. Yeah, and it, it's great to have that. Yeah. Awesome. In our you know show we feature interviews and we, we also play recordings of the music. Just wondering if there's a particular song or a couple of songs that you might like us to feature. Uh, and if so, you know, you know, maybe what the inspiration behind those would be or what the meaning is there for you guys. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we just released an album right at the start, right before the pandemic, um, that just came out in 2019. Um, it's called By Your Side, um, and recorded it with some some local musicians from our area, and produced it with a friend um, who's, who's big in the old time community. And yeah, that that the title track By Your Side is won by an Australian band called Mustard Courage, um, an Australian bluegrass band, which is a rare sight down there. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, that's, I think, an important song. It's a message behind that. And people coming together has really been what we've been lacking this, these two years. And so that, that's a favorite track for me. Yeah. And then from, from our set just here um, today, yeah, Fortunate Son, which we closed the set with. It's another favorite of ours. Um, yeah.
and you're listening to Salmon Fest Radio. take a minute now to get a cold glass of water or something after that performance it was inspired but let's move on satchel and meet our salmon champions all right dave i'll tell you about our salmon champions please i think you know them personally i do <laughs> uh we're featuring cook and lit keeper executive director and science director sue mogger today with 
young fisheries scientist Maddie Lee, and together they're going to talk about climate change and the way it's impacting our salmon streams here on the Cook Inlet. Where did you interview them, Satchel? Just upstairs and around the corner from where we're recording <laughs> right now. We feature Sue Mogger, Cook Inlet Keeper Director and Science Director, who has created a really robust body of work looking at stream temperatures in response to climate change in salmon streams here on the Cook Inlet. And with Sue, we sat down and talked with Maddie Lee, a young master's student who really jumped off of that body of research that Sue has provided to look more closely at the physiological response to warming temperatures in salmon in the Nilnilchuk River, part of the Cook and Lake Keeper watershed. And it's really cool to hear both of their perspectives and Maddie's and kind of trying to figure out where her research and career is going to point while Sue's sort of wrapping up two decades of research in this area. I'm Sue Mogger, and I have been looking at the intersection of land use change and climate change on uh, salmon streams and thinking a lot about how that information can inform our fisheries and land management. I'm Maddie Lee, and my research that I'm conducting is looking at the impacts of heat stress in Chinook salmon migrating upstream and linking their thermal stress to their reproductive performance in the hatchery as well as in the wild on the Nanilchik River and comparing that to Crooked Creek, which is a cooler system, both based on the Kenai Peninsula and I'm also a small business owner. I started a GIS consulting firm here in Homer, and that's really what started this work. And also working with other organizations in town like Catchmack Bay Conservation Society and Alaska Department of Fish and Game and USGS. And so this project was born from quite a number of collaborators, and I feel really grateful to have been part of this project. What is your draw to salmon? Why did you both choose to work specifically in doing salmon research? What makes you feel connected to Alaskan salmon? So I grew up on a salmon landscape, although it was hundreds of years after the salmon were there. And I didn't know that until I had moved to the West Coast and really began to understand the, the salmon story. And I remember very much the first salmon I saw trying to swim upstream over a waterfall in Oregon and hearing the stories of how many fish used to be in those rivers. And the work was very focused on restoration and trying to bring back something that was lost. And so when I came up to Alaska and started working with Cook and the Keeper and actually got to go out and be in the river as salmon were swimming around and to have people fishing on the same riverbanks that I was deploying my temperature loggers was just really inspiring that I was part of the protection, not the restoration of systems that support salmon. And for anybody who's seen a salmon swimming upstream, a big adult, there is something very spiritual in that, just the force of nature that's making it pursue its spawning beds. It's really, yeah, it's very inspiring. I feel like I didn't necessarily feel a connection to salmon until I started working at Cook Inlet Keeper as the climate change and wild salmon intern. And we were on the Deshka River canoeing and we were seeing large 
king salmon migrating upstream. I was very new to this salmon world in that experience. I feel like every summer that I, I came back to Alaska, I was like trying to understand more. And I feel like working as a fishing game technician at a weir uh, the summer of 2019, that was a crash course into everything salmon. <laughs> we we work on a, a broodstock weir where we... it it feeds the hatchery program that you know stocks the Ninilchik River as well as the fishing hole on the spit and in Saldovia and I also saw the impacts of that summer in 2019 of really high water temperatures and because I was so new I I really wasn't sure what was going on but you know there was talk in our group of like okay let's be you know very careful while we're netting because it's pretty likely that these fish are undergoing some some sort of thermal stress. And, you know, you could see a distinct difference in the way that the salmon were swimming around in the net on these hotter days. And I think that is really what fueled my, you know, desire to look into that more here on, on the Kenai Peninsula of, and trying to understand the connection there. And, you know, in some ways it's like, I'm still trying to understand, is that normal? Like at some point salmon do experience thermal stress and that, you know, that does happen, but it's also trying to understand at what point is it going to threaten the the salmon population? And that's really what I'm trying to parse out right now in my research. Great. Well, Sue, you have been monitoring water temperatures on Alaska's salmon streams in the Cook Inlet for two decades now. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> so can you just Tell us about the arc of your career and your findings. Like, what really stands out to you over those two decades? Yeah, well, so similar to Maddie, coming from another place, there's a lot of learning going on as you experience a new place, trying to understand why that's happening, why this is. And and I came in just at the end of the spruce bark beetle infestation that had really been very dramatic on the lower Kenai Peninsula in the late 90s. And so I came in 2000 when the trees were dead. There was a lot of logging going on. There was a lot of change. There was a a very poignant community concern about what happens to a salmon stream when your forest dies. And so that really drove the, the research that I started and that had been ongoing. We had been doing it for a few years. And I came in and carried that work on trying to develop some baseline data. And unfortunately, we often do this. We... Uh, are in the middle of an emergency and decide to start taking data when we are already well past the baseline, right? Like we're already, things have already changed and that's sort of a chronic challenge. So we had a run of really warm summers and out of curiosity about whether, what kind of temperatures we were in, I started putting these loggers out in rivers. We were getting temperatures over above 20 degrees Celsius, which is 68 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's pretty warm for a salmon, 55 and lower is really their preferred range. You once you're getting towards 70, that's surprising, especially in Alaska, right? You think of this as like the, the, the coldest part of their range. So then I started asking around about, well, you know, what, what are temperatures in Alaska? And was a little surprised to find out that there, there weren't really long-term data sets for temperature, which is kind of like your basic, like if you're going to start doing anything in water, temperature is the first thing you're going to do, right? Because it really impacts a lot of other water quality parameters. 
So I started taking temperatures, not really thinking it was going to be the rest of my career, but um, <laughs> it has been 20 years, and we have data sets that go from 2002 to this summer. I'll go out with our, our Alaska Conservation Foundation intern. That's the same program that we hired Maddie through back in 2017. And so we've had interns with us for years out in the field, learning about Alaska, learning about our systems and understanding the impact of changing climate in a place that has still such a strong reliance on a particular resource. So people who maybe come from a city environment that don't have the same connection to a certain wild food resource like we do up here in Alaska. But I think the most important contribution has been offer that long-term trend and to be able to show where we're headed in the future. And so when someone like Maddie comes along in 2019 at a weir, you know, she has no perspective on whether this is a warm or cold year, but our research shows exactly how extreme that summer was and that based on our data and our modeling, that wasn't supposed to happen until like 2060. Like we were like 50 years ahead of, of where we thought we were going to be on the, the temperatures for streams. And that's really dramatic. And if you don't have that long-term story, you don't have that perspective, you really have no idea. Can you talk a little bit more about your experience as a mentor through this intern program? And, you know, what impressions do these young people leave you with? I know that you're leaving them with a lot of impressions, but is there a takeaway from this program you want to share? For me, <clears throat> the salmon story is such a great opportunity to tell the story on like the hour it's taking you to get to the field site really helps you connect some dots in your own head. There's a lot of learning that goes on back and forth. You know, questions are an excellent way to, to clarify things in your own head as you're trying to figure out how to answer. So I really felt like they've helped me hone my understanding and story over the years. And especially if you've done something for a long time, it's so wonderful to have new energy in that space to really help you remember why you love doing this and why it's important. And to see someone grow their understanding over time. Um, I think Maddie is one of four of the interns who have gone back for advanced degrees in, in fisheries or stream ecology. So that feels good. There are probably a few of the interns that decided, okay, field research, not my thing. And that's great. That's nice to know at the age of 20 as opposed to later in life. So we've had a real smattering of, of people in that internship program, but in all cases, I'd say they, they brought an awful lot to our organization. And I remember being in the canoe with Maddie and we would, you know, come around to Ben and put our paddles in and suddenly it would just like explode with fish trying to get by our canoe. And that's just, yeah, it's pretty joyful. So it's all good stuff. Awesome. Maddie, do you want to share your experience and how it maybe served as a springboard for you? I think what comes to mind when I think of that summer was I was hungry for more. I, I left wanting to stay in Homer, wanting to stay at Cook Inlet Keeper. I didn't want to leave the science behind. I felt like those, you know, that trip to the Deshka and going out into the local rivers here and deploying temperature loggers and 
I, I didn't even feel like I scratched the surface with understanding the impact of Sue's work here in, in the area. Cool. Yeah. So can you just talk a little bit about maybe just more clearly map out the road you took to get to where you are now in your master's program? I guess I should should have highlighted in the beginning that since I was 19, I've been coming to Homer, Alaska in the summertime, and I just fell in love with the the beach, the landscape, the people, and have always wanted to find my way back here. And so a lot of probably my path to get a master's in fisheries has been fueled by that love of place. So I guess I can start from being the cook inlet keeper intern. You know, I was like, yes, I was just excited to come back to Alaska. And I was really open to learning about, you know, stream temperature monitoring. Also, having come here two summers prior, I'd always heard of cook inlet keeper. And I just like really looked up to the nonprofit and felt like I really saw the impact it had in the community. You know, during the summer, I, you know, I got a taste of GIS, I got a taste of field work, I got a taste of science outreach, you know, communicating with the public. We went to different festivals around the Kenai Peninsula and was able to communicate with just the average person about, um, you know, what was going on in our watershed. And that taught me a lot about how to make my research digestible and accessible to the public. I feel like Cook and Lake Keeper has really honed that into me as a fledgling researcher. And once I left, I uh, started a job at Apple doing GIS. And I just really kept dreaming about Alaska while I was there. And I just didn't get my you know, kind of the connection to the land and, you know, that my work meant something greater than capitalism and just that I felt like something was missing. And so I found my way back with the first job that I could get, but one that was outdoor related and science related. And that was as a fisheries technician with fish and game. You know, I fell in love with that fish and game job. I just I loved handling giant king salmon like it was just the most incredible experience in my life and yeah that that summer of 2019 was unlike any summer I've experienced in Alaska I'm coming up on my seventh summer I definitely wear that with a badge of honor (laughs) and uh, that summer felt dry hot Um, I was really concerned about climate change. And I had seen Vanessa Von Bila with USGS. I had seen her research on the Yukon River, and she was conducting heat stress research on migrating Chinook salmon there. And she had found in her research that over 50% of the samples she collected had signs of, of thermal stress. And so that's where I was like, okay, we need to do this on, on our salmon streams here. And I think that people here really felt that that was necessary and that was important. And I, you know, it, it happened quick, like within two weeks, you know, our board, Catchmack Bay Conservation Society, we talked about the idea, we applied for a grant, and then I called Vanessa at USGS. She sent me sampling equipment. I was already working at Fishing Game. I just started collecting samples that summer, like a couple weeks later, like it, it happened so fast. And it was kind of like this train that was going and I had to just keep going with it. And I really wanted to. I mean, of course, if you like ask the question and people are giving you resources to answer it, I was more than happy to 
see where it went. And that's where the master's came into play because it was like, well, if you're conducting research and you don't have a master's degree like this, you might as well, you're already doing the work. You might as well take the classes and write the thesis. And so that made sense to me. Yeah, I it was just a series of calls, emails, and <laughs> yeah, now I'm in Peter Wesley's lab at UAF and have had, you know, a really good experience with that. I'm so glad I did it. I feel like there's so much that I'm learning as a master's student that I wouldn't necessarily have gained if I was just doing the research on my own. I think there's a lot of resources the university provides. Just looking at things beyond the Kenai Peninsula, um, the big picture, like what is the point of this research, not just for the Nanilchik River, but like for salmon research as a whole. And how is this research going to shape the community of salmon researchers around the world? I think framing it in that way and, and trying to zoom out has been really awesome and a great experience. So I think it's so great that Maddie's doing this work. Temperature data is, you know, interesting, fun to look at, good to see how things are changing. But until you really understand how that impacts the actual species you're interested in, it's a little bit of hand-waving. And so I've just been so pleased to see that we're finally locally able to say, okay, we have these trends in temperature, and now we're beginning to understand how the fish are responding to that. And then the next step will be at a, at a bigger population level. So she's looking at individual fish, how are those individual fish responding, and then we can begin to understand how that might impact the population of fish and the management of those fish. So really so important to make those connections. And I'm so glad that it's happening locally because streams are incredibly diverse. And, and so, so she's really providing us a, a great understanding of how those systems are working and how those fish are responding. So, Let's come up for air for a minute and take a breather while we enjoy another song from Progress. window and I'll be gone cause you're the reason I'm jabbing on Thank you. 
hear you anymore. I was sinking, wandering, walking down the road. A once loved woman, child I'm told, gave her my heart, but she wanted my soul. And don't think twice, it's all right. I'll just say fairly well. Yeah, now, I'm not saying you treated me unkind. You could have done better, but I don't mind. You just wasted my precious time. And don't think twice, it's all right. You just wasted my precious time. This is Salmon Fest Radio, and you're listening to episode five of our second season. And you can catch up with anything that you missed by tuning in wherever you get your podcasts. Back to Sue and Maddie. Maddie, can you tell us more about the research? How are you analyzing that impact to fish, Mm -hmm. temperature impact to fish? So similarly to how um, USGS conducted heat stress research on the Yukon, you know, I got the same sampling kit let's call it where i am collecting a muscle biopsy how do you do that (laughs) it's basically like a plug you you just push it into below the dorsal fin and you do a little twist you know a fish is the fish is alive and you put it in like a cradle to have it relax and get a tissue sample and put it in a vial and immediately freeze it below 80 degrees Celsius. And so we had these dry shippers that we would bring around with us to the river. Then those samples get shipped to the East Coast. There's a USGS lab there. They assess heat shock protein 70, and they are providing me a concentration of that. And I'm then analyzing that against like water temperature, then including other covariates such as hatchery versus wild, like rearing origin. And so covariate is a effect, like the effect of how these other traits of salmon could be influencing their heat stress levels in addition to temperature. And so that part is what I'm doing right now is the analysis. But Additionally, this past summer in 2021, we got additional funding and I was able to do a radio telemetry aspect of the project. And so I actually esophageal tagged Chinook salmon using a plunger and you push this tag into its mouth and it it sits in its stomach. And so it has this radio antenna sticking out of its mouth. And so I did that. 15 times, there was 15 tags, and that allowed us to see where the salmon were spawning, and I would track them all summer long. So I had pack rafts, and I was floating the Nanilchik River on a weekly basis to see how quickly the salmon were moving upstream, and then once they got to the spawning grounds, I was able to then find the carcass and check it for pre-spawn mortality. So I'd open up the carcasses and look for egg retention and determine whether or not if heat stress had a relation to its egg retention. And so that's where I'm linking it to spawning success. 
Okay, so I want to kind of, that was a lot of information, and it's very clear that you are deep in it because um, you're using a lot of terminology that researchers use. So um, I'm not going to ask you to like say that whole thing again, but I some things that stood out to me. You're doing tissue sampling for heat shock protein. Can you tell us like what heat shock protein is? Mm-hmm. So heat shock proteins is in all organisms. It is a thermal response that protects your cells function when it's experiencing temperatures that exceed its normal range. There's varying levels of heat shock protein that salmon are releasing when it's exposed to varying temperatures. This is what I'm trying to understand in my research is like, where is that threshold at which we're seeing a really large spike in heat shock proteins in the salmon? And trying to link that to, is it water temperature or could it be stress or could it be, you know, their rearing origin? So whether or not they were reared in a hatchery versus in the wild. These are hypotheses and questions you're exploring in your research. Yeah, exactly. And I'm using the the muscle plug that I collected in the field to, to tell me more information about their thermal stress or thermal experience but i'm also using you know the water temperature data that's collected from cook and lit keeper uh, and comparing those and so that helps me tell the story of what happened to the salmon as it was migrating and how it's affecting its performance and so that's what sue's talking about is it's very much on the individual scale these individual fishes experience and trying to make assumptions about the whole population because of that. But there's there's definitely limitations to that. So the tracker that you're plunging down these 15 fishes' throats, is that is that just a geographic tracker or does it also monitor temperature? Because I'm recalling that you tagging fish with temperature trackers as well. Is yeah. That- I also, to make it more complicated, I had an additional tag on them. The radio tag helped me find the fish, and then I also tagged the salmon with a temperature logger tag, and that gave me the river's temperature at the location of the salmon every 20 minutes as it migrated upstream. So I'm also comparing the salmon's thermal experience and comparing that to what just one temperature logger that's stationary in the river is telling us. And so that is giving me a a more accurate representation of that salmon and what water temperatures it was experiencing and whether that is affecting its it's heat stress or or thermal stress. Right. And I think that's really cool. I want to let Sue jump in because like the, the cross comparison to what the, like the main stem of the river is doing versus how the salmon is navigating that temperature is really cool to have both sides of that. I know. I love this stuff. It's so cool to, to, to really understand. Cause you're right. Like we can put a temperature logger in the stream and that's giving us some representation of that stream channel, but we know that rivers have a lot of diversity in their, in their temperature, and that um, you know that's something that we've been mapping here at Cooking the Keeper for about last ten years, using thermal imagery, trying to understand that variation in the stream channel, and then to have a map of where the fish actually go 
can really help us understand the value of these cold water habitats that we're able to see on the thermal imagery. And, and we don't know, maybe when the temperatures are, um, you know, in the low 60s, they may not seek out those cold water patches. But when you get to high 80s, that if they didn't have those little cold water stepping stones to get their way up that stream, they might not make it. And that's when you'd probably see that, what Maddie called the pre-spawn marcality, which is basically a fish that never made it to its spawning bed. It died before it got there. All those little eggs never became juvenile salmon. We lost a whole set of the next population of fish. Many of us saw pictures back in 2019 on the Yukon of salmon that had been cut open by the researchers and they had their eggs and sperm intact, which means they never made it up and there were tons of dead fish. And that was really the indication that this is a significant event that we saw in 2019 and that we really do need to understand those thresholds so that managers can make decisions. You know, like if we're hitting those temperatures, then probably adding fishing pressure as those fish are trying to migrate is, is maybe not the most productive for the next generation of fish. So super exciting to see the tags that go in the fish so we can actually see what those fish experience. Very cool. Yeah. And I think what was really exciting for me was like a lot of the time when we research climate change impacts on a species specifically, there can feel like a lot of doom and gloom. And so I want to provide a little nugget of positivity that, you know, this is still preliminary research, but what I found so far was that the salmon's thermal experience on the Nanilchik River was consistently below the actual stationary temperature logger. And so that gives me an indication that the salmon are seeking out those cold water pools when they have the chance to. And I think when I saw that data, I realized that this is a very adaptive species that's resilient. And when faced with the choice, it, it can behave in a way to survive. And I think that hopefully provides people with some positivity that salmon are very, very resilient species. And that we as people living here have to make a choice to make sure that we keep those cold water faucets going, right? And that's where we begin to see the intersection between fisheries management and land management, because for those fish to thrive, those cold water places need to persist. Even as climate change continues, that groundwater that's feeding that cold water is so important. So that's where the salmon and people part of the story really come in and that we have choices. I fervently hope that we will always be talking about conservation and protection and that when Maddie is in her 22nd year of doing science research in Alaska, that she's not become a restoration ecologist that she is still on the front edge of learning about these amazing populations of fish. So in passing my baton to Maddie and, and her cohort, I hope that you will always be working towards ways to keep our bounty and that we won't be talking about what we've lost.
these days I seem to think a lot about the things that I forgot to do for you. I think that's a wrap. Thank you, Sue and Maddie. That was a great conversation. We're going to keep tracking the salmon science as it evolves in the Cook Inlet so that we can ensure that we're doing our best for our favorite fish. And if you'd like to know more about what's going on at Cook Inlet Keeper, just scoot on over to their website, inletkeeper.org. All right, to close it out, we want to give a shout out to all the people that make this show possible. We'll start with Pastor Tim and KBBI, who record and master music, give us technical support and expertise. We'd like to thank Cook Inlet Keeper for providing the resources that make this show possible. And of course, the organizers of Salmon Fest itself, who create the space for this radio show to come alive. And where would we be without our esteemed producer, Kira Hardy? who is the chief congealer of this show, and I think we couldn't do it without her. And, of course, our features from this episode. We've got Brograss, Tashi, and Kai, who was interviewed by Dave's very own offspring, Tom Applin. Thank you. And thank you to our salmon champions, Sue Mauger, Cook and Lit Keeper Executive Director and Science Director, with Maddie Lee, grad student at UAF, working to conduct research on the Ninilchik River. And I think that's everybody, so let's wrap this show up. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Satchel, and thank you for joining us on Salmon Fest Radio. Tune in again in a couple weeks for the next episode, or find us wherever you find your podcast. We've got a year and a half's worth of episodes for you to dig into. Visit our website, salmonfestradio.org, to be aimed in the right direction. And you're listening to Salmon Salmon Fest Fest Radio. Radio.